I'm Matt Bergman, and you are listening to the Punk Rock Libertarians Podcast, episode 279. I'm here tonight with Jared Schneiderman. Hey, everybody. Kyle Wagner. Hey, guys. James Babb. Good evening. And the great governor, uh, and the great, sorry, Judge Jim Gray. <laughs> yeah. Good evening. It's just nice to be with All you. Rise. That's right. That's right. You got <laughs> So, uh, Judge, now in uh, 2012, you were Gary Johnson's vice presidential candidate. Proud to say, yes, I was. And uh, I was one of the highlights of, of my life. It was such an inspiration and such a responsibility to be the spokesperson, the spokesman for uh, the Libertarian Party. And candidly, it was one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life and one of the most frustrating as well, because I literally felt that we were the better candidates in the race, but we just didn't get the traction that the old, you know, we, we just couldn't get the national media national attention. But, but uh, I'm anxious to uh, make amends and, and do better this time. I have a plan on how we can win the presidency this, in this election. And if you get into that, I'd be happy to discuss it with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I I actually heard some of, some about this. So you're actually talking about um, kind of I, I believe. Just correct me if I'm wrong, but you want to concentrate on like five or so states where you might do better and really like work those and try to rally up some uh, momentum. And the answer is yes. There's no way, at least at the outset, that we're going to be able to compete with the tens of millions of dollars that the Republicans or Democrats have in the big states like, you know, California. Biden's going to win California. It doesn't matter who does what. Uh, Trump's going to win Texas. Biden will win New York. So we're going to find five independent smaller states. And Larry and I are both going to spend a great deal of time in them. We will go. We'll spend our resources, you know, the billboards, whatever. Wherever I went in the 2012 election, I got really solid local media. So we'll get the local media. We'll look at people in their town hall meetings, assuming that they're open again. We'll look at people in their Kiwanis clubs or in their grocery stores and look them in the eye and say, your vote will make history. That if we win your state, 38%, 40%, we win three, two or three small states, we will probably get enough electoral college votes to keep the Bidens and the Trumps from getting a majority, then it goes to Congress. And I guarantee you, no Democrat's going to vote for Trump. No Republican's going to vote for Biden, but they're restricted by the Constitution to the top three finishers. We will be the compromise candidate. We will win. But even, and by the way, I tell people, and I believe we have a really good, solid, legitimate 3.7% chance of that working, which is pretty good. But if we only win one state, let's just try it. If we only win one state, That'll be a revolution for our Libertarian Party. That will support the down-ballot candidates. That'll give us credibility. That'll give us traction. And then forevermore, when they show those maps after the, the election, oh, you have these blue Democratic victories and you have those red Republican. What, what, what's that? Oh, that's a, that's a gold? What, that Libertarian Party won that, that particular state. We can do this, and it's exciting. I, I think it's very doable. In fact, I talked myself into, I think it's now a good solid 3.9% chance instead of 7 which state will that be? <laughs> well, we're not sure yet, but we actually have polling going on now in some states. We have an investigation looking into where our, where our chances would be stronger. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I can throw out some examples. It could be Alaska, could be Washington, could be New Hampshire, could be North or South Dakota, Wyoming. I don't, I don't know, but we will certainly look at them. And I look forward to spending a great deal of time there. You can probably scratch Maryland off that list. Uh, there's some states that I think uh, Maryland is probably not going to be top on the list. That's that would be. Yeah, it sounds like you pick the states based on like where you want to go fishing. 
Is that, I mean, I, I, I is that possible? I, I, uh, like this is the real strategy? Um, you saw right through me, didn't you? But let me also <laughs> add that, you know, once we start being successful in South Dakota or whatever, I don't mean pulling in more fish, but, but getting higher in the polls there, you know, 15, then 20, then 22, 25%, that will start having coattails in the rest of the nation. That other, other media will start, well, what's going on in, in Idaho? And well, I want to, I want to write stories about that. It'll have a coattail effect. So then we can start expanding into the other states as well. Now, uh, Judge Gray, um, you know, I, I followed you for a long time and it, it's like the, the thing I think that in, impresses like most uh, people about you is uh, you, you came out against prohibition in like 1992 as a conservative judge. Yeah, correct. Yes, I in fact did. And I was a drug warrior for a long time. You know, I was a Navy JAG attorney. I would uh, write charge sheets against my fellow shipmates in Naval Air Station in Guam and was criminal defense attorney there as well. I was, as I say it, I was pretty much raised the same way that you, I, or, or others were to equate heroin, for example, with bad, with evil, with prison. But then once I was a federal prosecutor as well, but then I've been on the bench for nine years and you see in your own courtroom, how we're churning low level drug offenders through the system for no good purpose, frequently ruining people's lives and critically important, probably some of these drugs, mind altering substances can be harmful. There's no doubt about that. My drug of choice of course is alcohol, but that's about 10% of the overall problems. About 90% is drug money problems. And if you look at the reality, Juvenile street gangs, I would see this in juvenile court. Juvenile street gangs are using the sale of illegal drugs as a recruiting tool. Hey, you want to make some money? Come join our gang. You'll never make as much money as you can by any way except by selling drugs. That's not a good thing. You know, look at Mexico. All this violence, all these frauds, all the beheadings have nothing to do with drugs at all. It's all drug money that causes those. And by the way, it's our, pretty much our drug money that does it. And we, you go down you buy to- drugs in Mexico? Oh my goodness sakes. Yeah, I think you probably can, as a matter of fact. Oh, I, I was just wondering if you did. I, I know. <laughs> well, and then, you know, we're creating immigrants. We're creating refugees because of the war on drugs down in Salvador or Guatemala or wherever. So let's eliminate the war on drugs and keep those refugees from fleeing the violence and coming up here. You know, it's just, it just feeds on itself. So, so yes, I did that in 1992. Very unusual thing for a sitting judge to hold a press conference. Candidly, maybe you'd call it libertarian courage, but I put my public life at risk. I yeah. put my judgeship at risk, but some things are more important than job security, and that was one of the, the things that I did. Well, yeah, that, that was like totally. You receive? I'm sorry? Uh, he said, uh, what kind of pushback did you receive? Well, um, <laughs> I saw the sheriff on the media, on the television that night, asking what I was smoking. Uh, the district attorney was going to uh, take me off all criminal cases, but at that time I was too smart for him. I was on civil cases instead. But I got, in fact, I was on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, my picture on the first day. And about a week later, they did a follow-up article showing Judge Gray's letters, and I received a stack of letters from people, almost always in, in agreement with me. And so we shared that as well and became a movement. I eventually wrote a book, my first book called Two Paragraphs, excuse me, called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, A Judicial Indictment of the War on Drugs. And by the way, it was endorsed. I asked six people to endorse my book. This was published in 2001. All six agreed. 
really genuinely proud of this. Milton Friedman endorsed it. George Schultz from the Department of State uh, for Ronald Reagan. Walter Cronkite endorsed it. Governor Gary Johnson, who was then the sitting governor of New Mexico. Uh, Arianna Huffington and Kurt Schmoke, who was the uh, mayor of Baltimore. If I figured I could get all six of these people to agree on anything, we were doing pretty well. <laughs> and I was one time just, it was, it was really a fun experience. I was on being, being involved with an ABC News special with John Stossel, went back to New York and was inter being introduced to the people in the studio. And there was a really nice looking young lady standing kind of off to the side, went up to and introduced myself. And she said, well, I know who you are, Judge Gray. I'm actually in Princeton University and your sociology class uses your book as, as, as one of their texts. But that kind of made me proud. So we've had some impact there. Did you have uh, other judges follow suit after you made that, that bold move back then? They, they actually did, um, not necessarily intentionally, but they just kind of let it out and that they were asked by the media, well, would you agree to do that? There was one judge, Jim Smith, on our court, and there was another one who was a federal magistrate named Ron Rose, and uh, they have what they call the Law Review, which is a spoof fundraising thing for the Bar Foundation, where you sing and dance and that sort of stuff. So the three of us came out on our roads and we spoofed the war on drugs. So we were known as the druggy judges. But, but yes, there were others, and there have been others since then. I belong awesome. to something called LEAP, which began as being known yeah. by law enforcement against prohibition. Yep. Now it's evolved and just because it's so many other things. It's called Law Enforcement Action Partnership. But there are judges all over the country now that belong to LEAP and have spoken out. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a great organization. What was with the name change? I, maybe you could fill us in on that. Uh, the, I well, remember law enforcement against prohibition, and then that when that name changed, I got worried. Well, no, you, you need not. That it's so connected to other things. It's connected to, to juvenile street gangs. It's connected to bail reform. It's connected to over-incarceration. So they're, they're just expanding the, these premises. They're not backing off at all against being against prohibition. But if you have a judge or a prosecutor or an attorney general that really is more interested in bail reform, then that person can just just speak about that. So we've expanded the, the scope without backing away from our, uh, our desires. Interesting. Very cool. So when you came across these ideas of, you know, just like not believing in prohibition, not believing that it works, would you say that you came from more of the angle of you were in the system and you saw it not working? Or was it was it kind of like you're reading like some like philosophers who were making sense to you? Like, how did that work? No, I'm a pragmatist. Um, I just believe in employing programs that work. I, Milton Friedman is my hero. And he said something that would be a positive revolution in our world if we would follow it, which is we should judge our programs by the results, not their good intentions. Just, just that alone. You know, that, of course, you employ that and do away with the minimum wage and rent control and the rest, but, but that's, that was the deal here. The good intentions, oh, you don't want your children to use drugs. I don't either. So let's regulate and control them, take them out from the black market. You know, you, I'd say, don't take my word for it. Ask the first 10 teenagers you find. If you want to, my son, my daughter, what would be easier for you to get today, marijuana or alcohol? And if they'll tell you the truth, if they wanted to, it'd be easier to get marijuana. Why? Because the illegal dealers don't ask for ID. You know, so this is, these are the sorts of things that you're, you're talking about. I so am in, worried about what methamphetamine does to people that I want to reduce that methamphetamine use by taking it out of the hands of black market people. And then during alcohol prohibition, 
We had huge problems. Check the emergency room registers. We had huge problems with what we called white lightning, you know, the impurities in the alcohol attack your nervous system, you know, make you a zombie, kill you, whatever. Those problems totally went away when we repealed alcohol prohibition. What drove me over the edge as well, I was on the bench, two different occasions. I was taking a plea of guilty to being under the influence of methamphetamine. Here in California, health and safety code 11550, mandatory minimum 90 day sentence. And two different young men at different times basically said the same thing. They'd give me a factual basis, which means they had to put in their own words why they're guilty of the offense. Your honor, my drug of choice was marijuana. And for years I would buy my marijuana from the same supplier. One fine day, unbeknownst to me, he sold me some marijuana laced with methamphetamines. I smoked it a few times and got hooked. And I still remember this thinking at the time. We all know smoking cigarettes is harmful for your health, but at least if you go to your local mini mart and buy a pack of Marlboros, you're gonna know it's not laced with methamphetamines. That's a right. drug prohibition problem. Mm -hmm. That was the sort of thing that I was seeing and I just had to spread the word because it, people just were not aware of it. Now they're becoming more so. Definitely. So um, I think we pretty much covered the uh, prohibition issue. Um, I guess we can move on to some other important sort of presidential campaign issues. Uh, what is your position on borders, um, specifically you know, United States borders? Of course. We would put in, Gray Sharp 2020, would put in what we call two Ellis Islands. What does that mean? We would put in two private companies in different, one in each different place, somewhere in the Mexican border, where immigrants could come in, they could apply for a work visa, pretty liberally applied. Only well, first have a background check, you know, to check for criminal justice, mental health, terrorists, sympathizers, whatever. And then they could be given a work visa. I don't call, call it an orange card, call it what you will, kind of like the old Bracero program. They can come into the country legally. Then of course, they're not gonna be prosecuted. They can probably get a driver's license. They can get insurance. Then they go get a job. And then they have to report back every two years. And they report back that they got a job at Ace Hardware, wherever it is, that employer would then pay, in effect, a finder's fee to this private organization. So they would, in effect, be a broker for, for, for labor. And that would keep them afloat. They'd come back every two years. If they didn't come back, then they would be deported. Probably couldn't come back in their country again for another five years. That alone would fund these organizations. Probably quickly start putting the INS out of business and would be able to normalize this whole procedure. If people want to come to our country to pursue the American dream, bless them. The idea that the present administration wants to close our borders is simply wrong. It's not who we are. But we should have some control because I wouldn't provide welfare to any, any people that are not here uh, as a green card or as a citizen. And that's one way that they could do it. They can bring their families, bless them. They can come too and they can support their families. That's, that's what we would do. Maybe pretty soon it would be so popular that people would, you know, of course, then if people are here now illegally, they could go down to these stations, down to these companies, they could get the work visa and then they could be regularized as well. It's just, it's a program that will work. We don't need a wall. We don't need all of this other stuff. We're treating human beings. And if they are good workers, we should put in a path to citizenship. And if they're not, they'll probably go elsewhere. It's a workable deal. It's basically, again, using the free enterprise system. And we're going to put, you know, in competition with the INS, which one would you go to? I know where I would go. That's what we would do. Can I ask uh, you to clarify something about this plan? No, not a chance. Well, okay, just this once. Go ahead. <laughs> this, um, these, these permission slips that you're talking about, these work visas, 
what if somebody didn't want one and decided to come work for me anyway? What would you do to them? Okay. Well, first of all, you know, they could be deported because they're not here legally. And I when think you say could be deported, break it down for me. They're over at my house working and they didn't get your work visa. You're going to send troops over? How's it, what's really going to happen? Well, as a practical matter, I guess I don't know. It would be dependent. Uh, if, first of all, of course, if they get arrested for drunk driving or something. that, that uh, No, I'm just that saying you, they're here at my house working and what should happen to them? They didn't get your permission slip. I just... Just specifically tell me what it is, and then that'll kind of tell me where we're at. I am not going to sick the federal government parading around and, and asking for people's ID cards when they're working in your strawberry fields. I, I'm just not going to do that. So I think, I think most people would like to be here legally, would like to be able to. What if to they don't want to be here? What if they don't want to ask permission? I mean, it, they would, I can't keep them from coming. You know, I would, I would hope they would. Nothing is perfect. I'm not going to sick the federal government on the people working in your fields. I'm not going to do that. So if they somehow are called to our attention and they don't have, they're not here legally. I believe in the rule of law. I think that they should be deported. But but if they're how would be, you how would you square that deportation with the non-aggression principle? Life happens. I think I believe in the rule of law, and so anytime you arrest anybody, I guess you're you're they're they're violating our laws. It is a it is a compromise. I'm not in favor of totally open borders. I'm just not. Well, I mean, well, surely, I mean, we can acknowledge there have been some like horrible laws throughout history that good people have disobeyed. Look, I read that the Department of Justice, Federal Department of Justice now is floating the idea of passing a law to allow the suspension of habeas corpus during this emergency epidemic. And I wrote, and you can see it on our website, graysharp2020.com, I wrote something that says we should defy that, we should protest that, we should not obey that. You know, we're not, even Abraham Lincoln couldn't suspend, suspend habeas corpus in the Civil War times. There are some laws that we should simply disobey. Now, I'm a judge, I don't take that lightly, but, but there's some laws that simply are so unconscionable that we should protest, focus a light on it, audit it, if you will, and show people how this is not who we are as Americans. Doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, we are, should stand up and say, the answer is no. What, people, are your, what are your thoughts on jury nullification? Over, over, one thing, over yeah. my lifetime, a lot of people have called me a bearded outside agitator in disguise. And so uh, that's something that I live proudly with. What are your thoughts on jury nullification? I do not agree with it. The answer to that is, and I know this will not go well with some of my libertarian friends, the answer is be, be careful what you ask for. Almost always when you talk about jury nullification, which by the way means that a judge can instruct the jury that if you don't agree with the law, you don't have to follow it. I do not like that idea. On the other hand, juries do have the ability of nullification. If a jury finds somebody not guilty for whatever reason, that ends it. That's okay. I am not going to instruct a jury about that. And the reason is, say you have someone who is charged with wife beating. Okay, so am I going to instruct some form of old crusty type that, okay, you know, if you don't like the law, you don't have to enforce it. Well, you know, she just, he, she kind of mouthed off to him. So he slapped her around a little bit. That's okay. Is that what you want to have happen? The answer to me is no. 
If it's bad law, then change the law, like the marijuana laws. But I will not instruct a jury because of just that. Be careful what you ask for. I know it's not something people have thought of. I've been in this system for a long time. Be careful of what you ask for. So a, so a jury should just convict a weed smoker if the judge tells them to? The judges never will tell them to. Flat out wrong. Flat, it should not ever happen. That's an ethical violation. The judge oh, yeah. will instruct the jury on what the law is. They'll say, look, if you find that, that if you believe he smoked that joint, you find him guilty. Tell me that's not something a judge would say. The judge would say if, the, if it is marijuana and if you find that it was in such and such a person's possession or if he was under the influence or whatever, and that's a violation of law, he wouldn't get that specific with regard to the facts. But yes, the judge would instruct that this is a violation of law. If you find beyond a reasonable doubt that these are the elements that they possessed, that they used, that they knew it was marijuana, yes, they would. And if that's the juror said, but I think this law is wrong, I'm going to say not guilty, what would the judge yeah. say then? Well, a judge would say that you swore to follow the law, but a judge is not in the jury room, and the, the juror would be able to say that under these circumstances. I think the, ju the, they, the jurors have the right to nullify the, the, the offense. That's the protection of the, of the jury system. I wholeheartedly agree with it. The only difference with regard to jury nullification is do you want the judge to instruct them that if they don't agree with the law, that they don't have to follow it. You know, the answer to me for Judge Jim Gray is no, be careful what you ask for. So you're Did specifying you between the the judge instructing and then the actual action of nullification. So if I'm outside of a courthouse and I'm handing out pamphlets and I'm saying, you know, there is a I'm aware of a, uh, a, a, a criminal case going on here wherein somebody is, uh, you know, on trial for just the crime of possessing marijuana. I think this is wrong. I, you know, want to educate people about nullification, not necessarily, you know, ju uh, jury tampering or, or whatever. Um, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that still a misuse of nullification? Is that proper application of nullification? Would you still be against that? Okay. Uh, again, it depends. If you're on the court property, I would, I would keep you off the court property doing that because now you're undermining the system of justice. If you're going to do it on private property, bless you. If you want to yeah. write an editorial, bless you. That's fine. So that's so just... It, so it undermines the, the judicial process if there's yeah. pamphleting going on on the courthouse grounds, like out that's front correct. of the door? That's, that's the distinction that I would draw, yes. I mean, you're going to allow people right outside the... So you would have those pamphleteers arrested if you were the judge at that I courthouse? Would, well, of course, the judge isn't going to be asked, but uh, I would ask... Well, he would send the sheriff's department or the, uh, you know, whoever, but they, the judges would give the order and then they would, and then they would arrest it. Is that, would that be the correct course of action, in your opinion? Uh, if they were acting in violation, because there are laws saying that you cannot... You cannot tamper with juries, and that's, that's, that's an offense, and I think that's an appropriate offense. And if you're doing it on court property, that is a violation of law. I would ask them to leave, to, to desist. If they didn't desist, then I guess they would have to be given a citation. If they still didn't leave, then I'd probably have them arrested. Yes, I would. What would the citation be for? Citation would be you're in violation of the law, at least in California. I don't know what other states do, but in California, jury tampering is a violation of law. And if you are trying to poison the law, the, for one way or the other. Ask it the other way. Hey, somebody is, is, is smoking marijuana, which is a devil weed. Convict them. 
you, I'm not going to allow them to pass those things out either. You're tampering. Well, well jury nullification uh, pamphlets typically don't say convict or don't convict. They they give factual information, which I think you just agreed is factually correct. If someone isn't saying, look, here's here's what a juror can do and gives it to everybody on court property, you believe that person should be arrested? Yes. If you're going to push it that far, the answer to you is yes. If they're disobeying the law intentionally on court property to 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 get involved and tamper with the jury. How is that tampering with the jury? I'm just curious. Okay. We're, we're speaking, spending time in this okay. going around in circles. If okay. you want to spend your time on it, I just disagree with you on that. I think okay. what I have is the practical, right, lawful approach. I don't believe in tampering with juries. And I'm That's, just the same thing as saying marijuana is an evil thing. Anybody with marijuana should be convicted. I don't want them to pass those things out either. That's fair. Do you do you think that, um, like, I guess with court property, would you run into any First Amendment um, uh, pushback on that with it being public property? Or is that like... Uh, you know, fair game as far as, you know, you guys are interfering with this trial. Uh, you, you can go to the sidewalk outside, but, you know, not on courthouse grounds. I don't know where that line is. on the- Life is complicated. I mean, you yeah. heard it here. I would tell you that if you're on court property, that means you're in the court and the court should be able to control what happens within the court. If you're All going right. to go across the street, fine. How yeah, because you, you see that a lot. You'll see protesters at, at trials like in the street, you know, they're maybe not on the courthouse steps, but they're like on the sidewalk with pickets or whatever, you know, saying to convict or right. They're not in the they're not in the courtroom. They're at the they're on the sidewalk in front I've of the courthouse. I've answered your question. Okay. Yeah. I've answered your question. Let's go back to the South. Let's go back to Jim Crow laws. You're going to have some people going to try to influence a jury to convict a black man because he's he's a black man he's a, he, I mean what am I supposed to say I do not want that to happen I do not want people artificially to interfere with the justice system on court property I do not and I hope you eventually come to the same conclusion yeah let's let's try a different uh, subject um, that's a good idea I'm curious about your thoughts on the uh, the quarantines that we've been living through um, you know, I mean, in Maryland, we got uh, put on, um, was it um, stay at home, stay at home orders for the last few months. I think there's been a lot of debate about uh, whether this was the right approach for, um, you know, everybody in the, in the U.S. A lot of people have talked about Sweden's approach was, was a little more um, laid back as far as letting people make the decision for themselves. Like, how do you kind of view um, California's and other states' approach to this quarantine? I don't kind of view it. What we have done is political. First of all, let's go take three steps back. The government failed us with regard to planning for an emergency. They're not going to know what, when, or where. They're not going to know if it's a hurricane or an earthquake or a pandemic. But you know one of my fellow candidates, uh, Art, I mean, uh, uh, Ken, Ken Armstrong, he, for a while, was, in fact, I interviewed him on my podcast. It's called All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. It's been going on for a year. And he was the head of the L.A. Port Authority for a while. And he was in charge of planning for emergencies. And eventually, then, they had an earthquake, and they implemented, implemented this plan. Good for him. The federal government failed us. Not only that, then they obstructed the free, the free 
treat people, doctors, researchers, et cetera, from being able to find a test and being able to try to figure out what's going on, to try to find ventilators, all that sort of stuff. The government was part of the problem. And then politicians did what politicians do. They protected themselves politically. So now I'm a mayor, I'm a governor, and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna do everything I can to keep you healthy. Now, I'm going to destroy hundreds of thousands of businesses unnecessarily. I'm going to kill tens of millions of jobs, but that's okay because I'm going to keep you healthy. So if you're healthy, ah, I'm a hero. I was successful. And if you get sick, oh, well, I did everything I can, so you can't blame me. In the meantime, it was a disaster that our government inflicted upon us. First of all, the federal government, the president or anyone else, has no authority at all to order businesses to close, to station people, even to order masks. They try looking at the 10th Amendment. So then let's go to the states, and I don't believe that a governor has that ability either. What instead should happen? Look, I don't want to get sick. I'm going, but you are now, say you're a hardware store, and you've been closed because you're not an essential business. But what happens? Okay, now I can go to a box store, I can go to Home Depot, I can go to Costco, and I'll buy my fruits and vegetables, and I'll also buy hardware. So you're closing arbitrarily some companies and keeping other ones open. Wrong. In fact, it's probably more dangerous for you to go to Home Depot because there are more people than going to my small hardware store. If I have a small hardware store or anything else, the answer is allow the owners, the managers, to advertise. Hey, we're putting in a new air filtration system. Every hour we take 99.5% of all the molecules out of the air. We're going to have spacing. We're going to actually have, have somebody take your temperature of our employees or the customers before they come in. And if it's 100 or, or above, we don't let you in. And then we're going to space. We're going to only have 10 people in the store at a time, all that sort of stuff. And then you decide, hey, is it worth it for me? If I'm 80 years old and I have pneumonia, I'm not going anywhere but if I'm younger or whatever, so the people get to decide. And then the businesses can stay in operation. Yes, it will be reduced, but you're not arbitrary. And then what did the government do? $2.2 trillion, really, $2.2 trillion, of which $500 billion was a slush fund for the, you know, the, the director of the, of the Department of the Treasury. Now it's a slush fund. Who do they give it to? They're cronies. You saw, I and mean, this is outrageous, you saw that, for example, the Kennedy Center, which is a great theater in, in D.C., they received something in the order of $15 million. Why? Somebody had the audacity to ask. Why? Because they were harmed by being closed. Of course they were. What about the other theaters in the world, in the, in the country? They received nothing. It's arbitrary. The whole approach was wrong. We needed libertarian courage to allow the people to make their own decisions. If you're in a small town in Vermont, as opposed to New York, hey, is the circumstance a little bit different there? If you're, the classic one was the governor of Michigan said, okay, in my, in my total understanding, my total omnipotence, you can take a kayak out, you can take a canoe out, but you can't take a motorboat. Really? I mean, it's just nuts. It's political. Libertarians would act responsibly and not politically. Other than that, I have no opinion whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I, I was also, I, I did not like how it's a, a blanket approach. It certainly benefited some businesses like Home Depot and Lowe's and Walmart that have been allowed to stay open. 
and uh, and I'm starting to see the the letters coming out now of businesses apologizing to their customers and saying we're sorry we're going out of business after 35 years or whatever we cannot continue to accumulate debt with no income and and so you're really seeing the human impact now which is which is hard to see and uh, I I definitely would not have taken this approach uh, as far as shutting everybody down. Um, as a go- as governors have done, and and I guess we will never be able to tell, you know, what would have happened had they taken another approach. Would the disease have spread rapidly? I, I don't think so. I think we could have been responsible about it and and uh, not seen too much more imp- impact of uh, spread. But anyway, yeah, I liked your answer. Thank you. Faster testing, better you know research. Let let medical doctors have the freedom to try. And if mm-hmm. I am if I've got the coronavirus and I'm an adult, and they say, you know, this is an experimental drug. Well, is it gonna kill me? No. Well, let me try it. I should have the ability to do that. No, government should not tell me that I cannot take something. No. I really don't know about the uh, whether the governors have the legal authority to shut everybody down like they've done. You know, the Constitution, I think, restricts the federal government, and I thought it left a lot of leeway to the states. Um, I don't know. I, I'm surprised there haven't been more legal challenges of what they did. But, you know, I, you would know better than I do if they're allowed to do what they've done. Well, the, first of all, the federal government, the 10th Amendment, the president, the Congress, they have no such ability. As far as each state, I know what a little bit in California, I don't think that, I mean, the, the, the governor caused, didn't pass a law, caused it to be a state of emergency. I don't think the governor has that ability. And, uh, you know, that's just, that's where I am. The lawsuits are beginning, but they should have come long ago. We needed some libertarian courage is what I'm telling you. Speak honestly with people, tell them what they're up against. Be careful. You know, I really do think wearing a mask is a good idea. Now, of course, the federal government originally said, oh, you wear a mask to protect, protect others from you instead of you from others. That was not true. You know, all that sort of stuff. Well, they As were. Fauci was originally saying not to wear masks at all. I, I know. I know. It was just to give the government time to get theirs hoarded. Right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know. Like, no, but, you don't want masks. Meanwhile, they, the government was out stealing millions of masks from everyone right. else and like making sure they're not available for sale on Amazon. And like now that we've got them all, now it's mandatory. That, right. that, you know, you're on to something there. I, I agree. Look, as president, you can't know everything. As a judge, you know, I was trained to be quiet, to listen to contemplate, to weigh credibility, to figure out what's going on, and then eventually to make a decision. That's what you have to do as president, to have our president second-guessing medical officials or firing them if they doesn't agree with them. That's simply wrong, and it's transparent. That We will not do that. Cool. Um, did you have anything else, Kyle? I mean, yeah, I could go through the list of presidential issues. I figured, I mean... Uh... You know, I guess the, the the big one that we we have to make sure we address before the podcast ends is foreign policy, um, which is obviously a, a huge issue. Um, are you are you familiar with blowback? Uh, yes, only so we all do. Let's make sure we're working on the same definition. What is yours? Uh, just the theory that uh, our actions overseas have consequences and. You know, when we um, occupy countries or or kill people, sometimes that creates terrorist blowback. Oh, goodness sakes. Let me, first of all, I was campaigning for U.S. Senate in 2004 when we were talking about putting troops in Iraq. 
And I said, if we put our troops in Iraq, it will be the biggest mistake of my lifetime. And nothing has happened since to change my mind. And so we put in drones and we kill people in drones with in Afghanistan. We create more terrorists than we, than we eliminate, assuming that they were terrorists to begin with. I will revenge. I mean, if you killed my brother, you know, I'm in Afghanistan. I don't care what you thought my brother was. You kill your, my brother with a drone. I'm going to, I don't care. I'm going to get you. I'm going to, I'm going to revenge. So we've created more terrors. This idea that we killed this, this Iranian general, had that happened to say our secretary of state of Bolivia, an Iranian drone killed him, it'd be an act of war. We would be at war with Iran right now. And it's simply wrong, flat out wrong. So I also say, it's a, a different part of this. I love New Zealand. I like New Zealanders. However, if New Zealand had an air force base 10 miles from my house and they flew low over my house and stuff and some of their airmen would get drunk maybe and, and pick up our women, I might stop liking New Zealanders quite so much. It's the same thing. That's the blowback in another sense. We will be safer by a large degree to, re to coming out of these places. Ron Paul, I know you've heard of him. I use his statistics, which are the United States has something on the order of 400 military reservations in foreign countries around the world. I say, let's conduct an audit. Let's not do it politically. Let's talk to the military. Let's see if they're necessary for our security, for our safety, our national interests. Reinforce them as far as I care. But any simple-minded audit within two months will be able to see at least 300 of those can be closed and will be more safe. In our, and we'll, of course, bring our people home and we'll have more security and we don't have to pay all that money. Okay, once we do that, we start looking around and say, okay, what about the other 100? Yeah, I don't know. Let's conduct another, maybe another 20, another 30, another 50. That's what you do. But if you say, I'm going to close all the bases and bring them home, people will get scared. You know, if you, what we will do, Gray Sharp 2020, we will not scare people. We will inspire people. We'll show people with that spotlight. And that's the difference. Because if you're all or nothing, I'm going to bring all our troops home. Okay, I understand, and I'd like to do that within some degree, although we do have a national interest, in my view, to keep the shipping lanes open, to keep free trade. We should help do our part as to that. Maybe we'll need a few foreign bases for that. I'm not that smart. I don't know, but we can look into it. But if you scare people and say, I'm going to bring all the troops home, close down the Pentagon, all or nothing, any time, as a real world, you say, I want all, you get nothing. All yeah. Guantanamo Bay or keep some of it open? I, I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Guantanamo Bay. Oh, good God. All of it closed or some of it closed incrementally? Guantanamo, the prison in Guantanamo, besides we shouldn't be there anymore anyway. The prison in Guantanamo is a blight upon who we are as a people. It would be closed immediately. Now, I understand. All at once? Suddenly? Yeah, suddenly. Well, Whoa. first of all, okay getting nuanced here, but, but it's a blight on who we are. It's simply a travesty for, for every reason I can think of. What I would do, because I think it was President Obama tried to close it, and Congress said they weren't going to devote any money to, to closing it down. So I would say, okay, hear ye, hear ye. I love that phrase. Hear ye, hear ye. Today is January 1st. By May the 1st, unless we have brought in money to bring these people home or to on May the 1st, I'm going to order that all of the doors in Guantanamo be opened and people will be allowed to leave. This is not what we're going to do. We're going to follow the law. I don't have the ability of ordering money to bring any of these. So if you Congress think that some of these are really radical or really terrorist and dangerous people, fine, devote the money to bring them into our prison system and give them a trial. 
But otherwise, I'll bet you, I mean, Osama bin Laden's driver was at Guantanamo. It's an atrocity. It is not what we stand for. It's anti-American and it's got to be closed as quickly as possible. Yes, sir. Yeah, I they I are civil, civil rights violations for sure. You know, we keep these people detained indefinitely without trial. I think, you know, you're saying like, okay, we can't close all the bases at once or we need to review them. A lot of libertarians are all or nothing. You know what I mean? And I think that's to our detriment as a party is that we have no sense of like, it's either yes, you're going to close them all or no, you're, you know, you're not one of us or you're, you're not okay. And, and uh, in the real world, like you have to work, do things incrementally. You have a lot of uh, factors to consider and a lot of other interests to consider. But you just get so much of our party is like they will write you off in an instant if you are like, you know, not 100 percent in agreement with them on some issue. I mean, it's it's crazy. And, and that's true. And, you know, life is complicated. Like we said, I've been criticized by my fellow candidates for not being libertarian enough. Let me read something to you. This is called it's from a pamphlet. It's called What is the Libertarian Party? It was printed in, in, in 2019. And on the back, it says, libertarians are practical. We know that we can't make the world perfect, but it can be better. Libertarians will keep working to create a better, freer society for everyone. That's mm -hmm. what I'm doing. I'm not a brick through a window. I'm not going to scare people. I'm going to inspire. We'll educate. We'll do this together. Like I tried to say earlier, I was in a Peace Corps. And I learned something in Peace Corps training that has stood me my entire life, which is people will not change their ideas, their actions, unless there is what we call a felt need. That means it has to come from within. And so if they start realizing that, then they will agree to change. If it's dictated from the outside, they won't go along with it. So if you scare them, that doesn't help. Ask any football coach, it's the way I explain it. And they will tell you that most of the games are won by the teams that get the most first downs. If you're going to throw Hail Mary passes, maybe you'll catch a few now and then, but you almost never win the game. I want to win the game. I mm -hmm. want us to move that ball down the field. I'm an incrementalist. I'm a practical-minded person. I want reasonable laws. I want to enforce them, et cetera. But I want to make those first downs so that next year, five years from now, we'll be in better shape than we are today. If you're going to go for the all-or-nothing approach, you'll get your what I call purity points. You know, oh, I'm more libertarian than you are. But five years from now, we'll be in the same position that we are today. That's not what I want. I like that analogy, the first down analogy. I've never heard that before. That's good. Um, all right. I guess I've asked, a lot, I've asked a lot of questions. I could keep going, but I'll let uh, – so there are it, questions it, from the Discord and some other people. So Yeah, we actually do have some Discord questions. So that's a little Please. chat program that people can submit questions. Um, and one of them Take is the sort of, off. what's that? Take the gloves off. Hit me. Take the gloves <laughs> off. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so one of them is, do you think that uh, libertarianism ought to be seen slash studied as more of a legal theory or a moral theory or both? The answer is yes. So both. both. Yeah. It, it, libertarians really, if you get down to it, is love. You know, it's a, it's a caring of other people. It's an equality of other people. It's treating people the same way. Thomas Jefferson was the prototype libertarian who said, we, I don't care if you worship one God, 20 gods, or no God. It doesn't pick my pocket and it doesn't break my leg. Live and let live. That, that's who we are. I care about people. I want to let them prosper by working, by rolling up their sleeves, by doing better, by their success. And so I encourage them. There was another 
saying that anyone that feels that they can thrive by relying on the government should talk to the American Indian. I mean, that's, that's what you, <laughs> I'm, the, the government supposedly, oh, mommy government, we will take care of you. Talk to the Native Americans. How much has it helped them in the last four, 240 years? It's kept them down. I want them to thrive. So I want them to be able to profit from their own labors. You ask yourself the question as well, who takes better care of a house, an owner or a renter? Well, that's obvious, you're an owner. So no one on the Indian reservations gets to own their own land, own their own property, own their own homes. Okay, so they have no incentive to fix it because it isn't mine. And if they want to get some seed money to start a little company, they can't mortgage their house because they don't own it. It's the government that's in the way. I care about you, I want to get the government out of your way, but I will have a safety net to below which we will not let you fall. Thank you, Milton Friedman, I've discussed it before. Not because we have to, but because we're compassionate people. And then do away with all of this other welfare bureaucracy and, and fraud and intrusion and all the rest of that stuff. So we'll be in better shape next year than we're in today. So you referenced Milton Friedman, are you talking about his ideas on UBI? No, he did not favor UBI. That's a misnomer. He favored what he called a negative income tax, which is different. But I, I don't know if you want to go through it. This would, in effect, put in that safety net, give everyone an incentive to earn the extra dollar, which is totally missing today. For example, my daughter, has, she's allowed me to say this in public. She's bipolar. She'll probably never be able to hold a job. I, she was volunteering for a wonderful organization, Veterans Legal Institute, and I told them behind her back, look, if you give her a job and pay her $12 an hour, I will pay you $15 an hour. But we quickly found out that if she works more than 10 hours a week, she will lose more money from Social Security and other benefits than she'll gain by working. That's positively nuts. Yeah. Milton Friedman's program will give people an incentive to climb out of poverty. What we call it is turn it from a crutch to a ladder, and that's where we will go. It works and amazing amounts of, of intrusion that we would get away from the IRS and intrusion from the welfare system and all the duplication and all the bureaucracy and all the fraud. It's simplified and it will work institutionally. I'm proud of it. Go to my website. I've written about it, judgejimgray.com. I've probably, take away the probably, I have written more about the issues than any presidential candidate in history, even including James Madison, because I've written those articles, I've written the blogs, Two, two, four books, two musicals, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's there. No plausible deniability whatsoever. It's all in writing. You so you would, oppose, you would oppose a UBI, right? Yes, I oppose the UBI. I do not agree with that at all. It's stupid. Okay. Other than that, it's wonderful, but it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say you wrote musicals? I've written two. Uh, I started a peer work in Orange County where we try to mentor our students, then took the lessons that I learned from that, turned it into a musical. It's called Americans All. If you want to hear some of the music, again, go to judgejimgray.com and uh, it sings some of the songs. It's meant to mentor our children. And the other one is called Convention, which I wrote with two partners, but it's called Convention, The Birth of America. And uh, it's about the United States Constitutional Convention, where, by the way, and it hasn't been performed yet, I'm still working on, actually working on the... Uh, National Constitution Center in the mall in Philadelphia, see if they will present it, but, but it takes the Constitution and takes it forward, but we also hold them accountable, you know, the delegates, because... You'd be willing uh, to maybe sing us a verse. <laughs> <laughs> this is punk rock libertarians, yes. by the way, okay. so you better make it hardcore. All right. Uh, I think I can do that. So we have our, we have our entire show, 
and we take it through at the beginning and then we have the finale and it shows how we have progressed throughout under the constitution. And at the end of it, the curtain comes down, then the curtain goes up again. And Ben Franklin, who was our moderator, leads George Washington back out and says, well, George, throughout this convention, don't you think there've been some eavesdroppers? And he says, well, yeah, dropping your eaves, that's gotta hurt, but no, no, manager, turn up the candle power. There are people, oh, there are people out there. Wow, says George, they have better eyeglasses. Yeah, and better teeth too, says George. But finally, Ben says, George, where is this? Oh, talk to somebody in the first row. You're in year 2020. George, this is 240 years later. Is there anything you would like to tell these people? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, there would. They say you like to call us founding fathers. Our portraits are still in your history books. To that, we'd like to say we're deeply honored and glad to see the artists captured our good looks. But if you're the father's words, you're our sons and daughters with some greats and grands appended, that's for sure. And though we never met you, we knew you'd be coming along someday. So we wrote this constitution to keep you safe and strong the American way. Keep it alive, see that it thrives and pass it around again. But open your eyes. You've got to be wise, you've got to be strong, and then teach your children well. Maybe even tell them of your founding fathers, how your sons and daughters carried it through a hundred or two perilous years to hand it to you. For now you, you are the people, it's you, you are the we. It's yours, your constitution, it belongs to you and me. Yes, you, you are the people, it's you, you are the we. It's yours, your constitution, for this land of the free. Carry it forward, carry it on, protect and defend it in keeping it strong. And when there is weakness, amend if you must, but harbor no meekness, defending this trust for you, the whole cast now, talking to the audience. You are the people, it's you, you are are the we it's yours your constitution for this land of the free curtain you asked me you got it <laughs> nice thank you thank you I very nice you should have had a backup orchestra standing by for this. <laughs> yeah. i did that, in my thank head you. Thank i think you so that is much. the uh, first singing performance that we've had on the podcast so well, it's not easy to do acapella <laughs> like that, that was yeah nice. not at all man that was Props. great I yeah. think this is I think this is throwing down the gauntlet to Vermin Supreme to come back and do a musical number. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm to answer that question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, that's great. You've proven you're fearless. So so that that, that definitely counts. For sure. <laughs> All right, Matt, did you have any uh Matt, any questions? Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Did did somebody say something? Oh, I was asking you, Matt. Oh, no. you, you've been a little quiet. No, dude. Like, uh, I th think uh, I think we're running just about out of time here. Um, Judge Jim Gray, is there anything you would like to plug or say before we uh, before we end this? Yes, I think that Larry Sharp is just a sensational man. Well spoken, dedicated. He has helped down ballot candidates for as long as he's been in the party. I have too. I've been in the party for eighteen years. I think that we're going to be the unity party for the libertarian part for the, the libertarian party. I think that we'll be the unity campaign for the United States of America. I'm proud of who we are. If you give us the ability to be your nominees, I think that if we ask you to look at graysharp2020.com, uh, see us, visit us, join us, support us, help us move mountains. And if you do, or even if you don't, we will do you proud. I deeply believe that. I think we can move things forward. We will make 
libertarianism accessible to the nation. They will start understanding who we are. So when you say the word libertarian, they'll have good connotations because yes, my child is now getting better education. Yes, my grandmother is getting better health care. Yes, you know, we're bringing home the troops. Yes, in fact, the biggest breach of contract I can think of in our country today is the way our government treats our veterans. If you lost a leg, you're getting pretty good treatment because it's visible. If you have PTSD, shell shock, whatever, it's an atrocious thing. We will change that. It's wrong. You know, we have, I would say 20% of the homeless in our country are veterans. I think there's a connection there. These are things that we will resonate. So many people are our constituents, you know, the young, the people that are not getting good schooling, the people that are not getting health care where they should, you know, have health care your way, that sort of thing. We will, we will resonate. We will move this ball forward, and I'm proud to do anything I can. I'm still in the Peace Corps, and I fully intend to do everything we can to help our down-ballot candidates and to move forward move that football down the field and win the game. Now it's a 4.1% chance instead of 3.9. <laughs> like your optimism. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Judge Gray, uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. It's, it's, it's been a blast. It, it certainly has been lively. First song ever here on the podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. You're, and, uh, you're, you're good people. You've been doing this for a while. Um, actually, yeah. I... That it was like your 279th broadcast. I have weekly for the last 263 weeks put out my uh, my podcast. It's called you know, uh, so uh, it's just it's out there. Two paragraphs for liberty. Thanks for what you're doing. You're helping to spread the word as well. Anytime I can help you, please let me know. Awesome, man. It, it sounds great, man. I, we'd love to have you uh, back on again sometime, man. It, it's been a blast. Yeah. Feel free. Feel free. But be careful what you ask for. Like I said earlier, if you ask me a thing, I'll do it. So be, just stand advised. <laughs> nah, sure. yeah. Dude, we just like to hang out and, you know, talk, shoot the shit, man. And uh, it, was, it was a great time. Uh, we, we thank you for uh, being here. Um, we also, we have we have t-shirts over at uh, libertariancountry.com. If you type in the code PRL, you'll receive a 10% discount. If you spend 50 bucks or more and you use the code PRL2, you'll receive a 20% discount. This podcast is brought to you in part by... Conversations about Freedom podcast hosted by Moral Bob. Um, also, we're going to uh, do the after hours program. So, if anybody wants to come over there and hang out, um, yeah, uh, we'll put that up on the Patreon uh, in the next couple hours, probably. Until next time, live free or die. You can't justify killing by economic gain For God, country, and democracy You can put freedom in death point in a fine land You stop what the truth, then bring them home I believe the jokes will do the best for you And I believe that we have the power Have the power Not aggression principle, the violence of the state becomes absolute!